you know the phrase bitcoin fixes this i, I really think it incentivizes this because what you're talking about is exactly. incentive take these incentives away what what is there to do free societies lead to an increased quality of life for that very reason controlled societies lead to a decreased quality of life for that very reason this is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome back into the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This week, Josh and myself, Dan, sit down with Tim Niemeyer. Tim is the co-host of the Lincoln Land Bitcoin Meetup in Springfield, Illinois. He has a background in technology. He was a U.S. Air Force avionics technician. His degree is in psychology, and his day job is as an elementary school teacher. He also loves history, and he just authored a book titled History Echoes Bitcoin. Those of us who have spent any time studying Bitcoin recognize that it's like a sprawling, gorgeous cave. One small entrance leads to larger and larger chambers, each one blowing your mind more than the one before. What you thought was just some bizarre and useless internet money morphs into a species-altering idea that could foundationally improve human cooperation. During this chat and in his book, Tim does a marvelous job leading us into the Bitcoin cave and exploring how Bitcoin's design and incentives mirror a variety of powerful and recurring patterns throughout history. Bitcoin's a big idea, and history illuminates why. Speaking of history, one thing it teaches us is that too much trust in other human beings can leave you exploited and broke. We recommend that you keep at least a portion of your net worth in an asset you can fully control. And when it comes to Bitcoin, that requires you embark on self-custody. We both use the cold card, and there's a reason why this device has stood the test of time and is used by a large percentage of hardcore Bitcoiners. It's because it fucking works. It's reliable, ultra-secure, easy enough to use, but still gives you room to grow if your technical aptitude and appetite increases. You can use code BCB, that's BCB, for a delectable discount on the cold card, or visit the cold card link down in the notes for discounts on a bunch of their products, including the block clocks. Couple of other quick shout outs and codes if they're helpful for you. If you do plan to attend Bitcoin Amsterdam coming up quick here in early October, or Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville next July, take 10% off your tickets with code BCB. These ticks aren't getting any cheaper, ladies and gents, so jump on it if you do plan to attend. Also, open enrollment is upon us. If you have healthcare needs or healthcare bills and want to save money while supporting people rather than large insurance companies, check out CrowdHealth at joincrowdhealth.com and use code BLUE, that's code BLUE, for a big discount on a three-month trial period. Lastly, do us a huge favor, folks. Can you just sit back, relax, and strap in for a cosmic and occasionally comical romp with Tim Niemeyer? Tim, welcome to the show, man. Um, you wrote the book, History Echoes Bitcoin. And I'm reading this book, and I love history, and obviously we love Bitcoin. So it's a great book, and it reminds me, and I think you should take this as a high compliment. I don't know if you guys, either of you guys have read this book called Lessons of History by Will Durant. Oh. It's a short, it's very similar to yours, and it's like short essays on different topics. This book is phenomenal, and the fact that your book reminded me of it is I think high praise. And if anyone hasn't read either of these books, you should read them both. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, by the way. Appreciate that. Yeah, we're we're delighted to have you. It's a it's a fun, interesting, very important angle. This kind of book and this theme that we're going to explore today really peels back the magnitude of Bitcoin. Like it, there's probably a newcomer or two out there listening that's like, I I I thought this was just some stupid quickly passing fad of fake internet money. And this is the kind of book that's saying, no, the, this whole decentralized protocol thing we call Bitcoin, it's hitting on some of the deepest, most powerful and important threads that date back through the history of our species. E I mean, even if Bitcoin doesn't work, I think we learn a lot from Bitcoin. Obviously, sure. the three of us think Bitcoin's going to work. But my takeaway from reading this book is just a, a healthy reminder when I finished it. Bitcoin is a really, really big fucking idea. Absolutely. I mean, from what you're saying, it makes me think of the phrase in Bitcoin, zoom out. So many, so many in Bitcoin, we tend to hyper-focus on the little things, on the details of the code or whatever, the 21 million, this, that. But when you zoom out, 
far enough, you see how all of these um, ideas, all of the properties that are expressed in Bitcoin, they've been with us kind of throughout history. We've been wanting uh, to be free of asking for permission or being censored or whatever. When you zoom out far enough, you're, you know, force for the trees kind of thing, you're able to see how this all kind of comes together. 100%. Before we go too deep, let's rewind for a second. Who the hell are you? What do you do? You kind of have a little bit of an interesting story. We've never had anyone on here that's teaching uh, music to kindergartners, Josh. So, uh, Tim, who are you? Introduce yourself. I'm Tim Niemeyer. I'm from uh, central Illinois. I grew up around here. Uh, my father was a farmer. I did a few years on that. I was thinking either I, do I want to be a farmer my whole life or do I want to see the world? So I ended up going in the Air Force, uh, spent a couple years in Japan, traveled around a little bit. And then after tour of service, I uh, decided to go to college, uh, got into psychology, got into elementary educating. Uh, I've been a musician throughout that whole time, guitarist, just in the last four years of my teaching career. I, there was an opening for an elementary music uh, position. So I, I jumped on that and been teaching that. I absolutely love it. The Bitcoin side of that started closer to 2018. And by 2020, me and uh, my co-host, Dan Rentmeister, we started Lincoln Land Bitcoin here in Springfield. Elementary teacher by day, Bitcoiner by night, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so I haven't been in the Air Force. You've had that experience of like the camaraderie of people that you're around and like, been to probably an Air Force wedding or two. Dan and I, I'm just going to go down this tangent for a second here because I know Dan wants to talk about this and I do too for a second. We've got a wedding we're going to tonight for a guy who he's great, but we just know this is going to get wild because there's probably what, like 10 or 20 firemen going to be at this wedding, Dan? I'm glad we're not doing this tomorrow morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow morning is going to be rough. Austin made mention yesterday when we were at training about people turning it like me turning into a mongoloid. I think it's a reference to Rick and Morty. If anyone's familiar, <laughs> like that's not off the table whatsoever. Like could happen. I don't plan on it ever happening, but it does subtly transition at some point. Yeah. We've talked on the show before, Tim, Josh doesn't drink a whole lot, to be honest, like in the normal cadence of Josh's life, alcohol is not a big theme, but when it, when it rears, it's, I'm going to say wonderful head. It gets bizarre. I have said on Blue Collar Bitcoin before, he gets to a point where I can see it in his eyes where his soul leaves his body. And and the more time I spent with Josh, the more I enjoy pinpointing and announcing to everyone else that that, that juncture has been reached. The soul is no longer with us. Be careful. Um, but yeah, tonight, I think in the spectrum of fire department weddings, I think tonight, Josh, could be, and you don't know until you're there, until... Right. The, the we'll party gets started. We don't know is, anything yeah. about the DJ. We don't know anything about the vibe. But I think this has the potential to be on the rowdier end of the spectrum. And I am mentally and physically preparing. I got a great night's rest last night. I got a workout in. Took some vitamins. Yeah. Going to flex the intellectual muscle here. But it has the potential to be weird, exhausting, yeah. and amazing. There are going to be some numb frontal cortexes here in uh, six hours or so. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Let me ask, do firefighters, do they get um, like aggressive when they get drunk? Is that, a, is that mm, an overstatement? Or, uh, there are some outliers that I could pick out that would, but I don't think any of them are going to be there. I think they're going to be some pretty, pretty gentle drunks, you know? There's a lot of loving. There's a lot of loving at our department. I, I, and to be, to be clear, like, we, I think we work at a very special place. I know probably everybody feels that way about their department, but it is a really wonderful group of people, a group that Josh and I love spending time with. And yeah, I'm just, I enjoy spending time with everyone. I think there's an element to it in our line of work where some of those social frictions and anxieties disappear because we know each other so well. When you live together, work together in these environments, brush your teeth next to each other, shit in the same bathroom as each other every third day. They're, they're, you, you can't pretend to be someone you're not. Like everybody that I work with at the department, not just Josh, like everyone that I've worked close with, they can pinpoint what I'm good at, what I'm bad at. There's no hiding it. And so when you get in these, when you go on trips with these guys or you're in social environments with these guys, you're not trying to prove anything to anyone because everybody already knows the full deal. You kind of agree with that, Josh? Oh, yeah, 100%. We already, there's been ideas floating around that we should 
uh, the gentleman who's getting married's name's Adam. And we're thinking about <laughs> maybe floating the idea or like kind of introducing the idea to him that there's this underground swingers club at our department that he's not aware of. But now that he's getting married, we're going to kind of we're, we've got this like group of like six or seven people that are in on this joke. And we're going to try to insinuate to him gently and then more forcefully throughout the night. Like, hey, are you getting into this club or what? Like, it's kind you of got to decide deal. tonight. Like the, tonight's the <laughs> night. I, I think he's going to the goal here is to introduce it. He'll think it's a joke, but then have enough people repeat it and do a good enough acting, which, Josh, I'll try to do my best tonight Yeah, I'll do my, to yeah. make him be like, holy shit, are these guys serious? Um. Yeah, it's going to be a special night. Thanks for listening to us. Yeah, Tim, thanks talk for about what, what's coming no, on that. here. I, I'm, in I'm interested. Like, uh, <laughs> when, when, do you orange pill early, middle, often of the night? Do you have like a time where it's like we're mm. drunk enough, but not too drunk, to really uh, bring a big? I think everybody there is already apprised of our that situation we won't even have to broach that there like people will just be like shut the fuck up we've heard enough of this we've listened to enough of your podcast well and truthfully most of the people going to this wedding own bitcoin a lot of them are in you know so it's it's some of the people that are in and know and have heard us talk for years now they're the ones that are sick of it they're like i i fucking get it guys i get it i understand the value proposition and in terms of when it comes out, I typically go to an event like this thinking, I'm unplugging, I'm not going to talk about Bitcoin. But then when the inhibitions get lost, that's when I can't help myself and I want to talk about Bitcoin. Mm. So well, we'll see. We'll see. Man, there's there's so much. Yeah, I mean, you've covered such a wide breadth of history with this book. It was really hard after reading it for us to distill down like what particular part should we talk about? Mm. And um, yeah, I don't know where to start here, Dan. You wanna? What do you? What do you think? I want to start just with the general concept of the book. The title, okay. as we've established, is "History Echoes Bitcoin." You you have a quote in the book. I think it's it's towards the end of the book. The properties of Bitcoin have always been with us. I'm going to ask you just the broad question: Why do you feel history echoes Bitcoin? What do you mean by that phrase? There's just the title of the book. So if you look at the arc of history, and like I said, you zoom out enough, you see repeated episodes of humanity searching for a solution to various problems. Mm. So I have, I think, eight chapters, um, and they are the properties that are expressed in Bitcoin. So like permissionlessness. We've always been trying to find a way to be able to act without needing permission. We've always been trying to implement some kind of governance structure that respects all participants, um, like decentralization. There's always that consistent creep of centralization that we always have to fight against. Uh, trust minimization. We've always been trying to verify the truth free of trust. We've been trying to able to speak freely without being censored. Um, like immutability, trying to find a way to preserve an accurate representation of records. And, and scarcity. I mean, we had that for a while with the gold standard, but determining the best way to store and share our time and energy. Those things, those properties have always been with us. So if that's true to varying degrees, we now have a protocol that expresses all of them simultaneous. Mm. I could have said need for all of these properties have always been with us, I guess you'd say. Yeah, <clears throat> but this is the best instantiation of those different characteristics that we've sought after throughout history being coalesced into one perfect well as close to perfect money as we've been able to uh create as humanity thus far when you think about what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with how we organize humanity fairness is i think a key theme things get imbalanced and unfair if you look at slavery right and lack of freedoms power is lopsided and i think one of the most powerful realizations for people about Bitcoin that you explore a lot in this book is that this is a new technology enabled by the digital age, enabled by a number. It's an amalgamation of numerous technologies that that are currently and may continue to allow us to thwart some of the negatives of humanity. If you give one human too much control, if you give a group of humans too much control, given enough time, that is always not sometimes always a problem 
right? And so we need to find technologies. If it's Bitcoin, great. It's looking like it's going to be that way. But increasingly, if we want more fairness for society, we need to inhibit small groups of people gaining lopsided control. But that is so much easier said than done. Here comes a workable solution to spread power and control. I I was thinking about the way you said that. I'm not sure fairness is the correct word to use because fairness has such a, a, it's such a loaded word and what, what's fair can be viewed very differently from one person to Mm. another. And I think maybe the more proper word to use is just because Mm. if we can agree on what is just, um, fairness, like we're all born unequal, right? We've got different talents. Uh, you know, some pers- some people can speak better. Some people can write better. Some people can, you know, shoot a basketball from way from much further away and, and nail it. And I can't do that necessarily. Some people have giant cocks like me. It's unbelievable. A, yeah, a burden that I bear. Uh, it, it is unfair. I don't feel like that's fair. You need to donate some of that cock to some other people. <laughs> yeah, but I just think it's important to to define terms at the beginning of this, and I think justice is a more fine-tuned word for what we're talking about than fairness, especially because, especially in the last five years, I feel the word fair has gotten so overused. Like it's not fair, this or that. What do you know what I'm saying? On top of that, you could even use the word consistent. The changing of the rules, whoever has control of the rule set can change the rules at will. Um, I wrote an article for Bitcoin Magazine as a guest contributor a while back, and I talked about that in the context of baseball. Like imagine if you're not only a player, but the manager, but the ump, the rule maker, the scorekeeper, and you had the ability to change at will. You know, never know from one second to the next what what game you're playing because you get to change the rules. So, I mean, you want so in Bitcoin that the decentralization that Dan talked about and the fairness that you talked about, Josh, that all kind of comes together because nobody can fuck with the rules. You, it's it's consistent. Totally. Uh, what you just said made me think of another quote from the book, which was by giving your side the ability to subdue whatever they want, you're tacitly giving the same power to the other side when they return to power. And this just makes me think about the beauty of a development or a movement that causes us to zoom out on time frame, which I think I think Bitcoin does. It, it obviously we're zooming out on history in the past, and we're thinking much longer term about the future. And although a lot of motivations are pure, people are trying to seize control or or censor or redistribute. It sounds like a good idea short term, but a lot of the trends that you highlight in this book that we're seeing in the 21st century, maybe even more dramatically, the more centralization you have, that, that may be fine and good in the short term with the leader in control that you like. But think about it flipping over to the other side. Like if we just pick on one example here, I would say to liberals, if you give your favorite liberal politician a ton of power, think about that flipping the other way. Think about Trump getting reelected and having those same exact powers. And this is part of the reason it's it's imperative that we we dig into and build on systems that zoom out on the time frame. If you get one side control, you're giving the other side control and we are so, because of our high time preference mindset, because of the fiat system perpetuating that, we are zoomed in. We, we yes. don't, aren't able to see the forest from the trees. We aren't able to see the next, uh, the second and third iteration of whatever that is. So right. mm. the fiat standard is what enables that, enables that ability to keep taking more and more control that consistent creep of centralization like we mentioned i I think this would be an interesting point to to dig into examples in history that you provide in this book of of solutions that have been workable and have allowed for cooperation and flourishing and justice one of our favorite parts of the book was you talking about this great council of the six nations can you speak a little bit about what is this what period in history what can we learn from it uh native americans uh I'll probably mispronounce this, Haudenosaunee, uh, the Great Council of the Six Nations, um, back before, you know, America. They needed a solution. They had, they had wars. They fought over territories. They fought over resources. You know, it's natural. Um, 
they created what's called a participatory democracy, and they dubbed it called uh, the the Great Plan of Peace. Each tribe would live their own lives while defending each other's property rights. That was the end result, and the simplicity of that plan was where the uh, the magic happens. Um, it took a long and arduous process to to get some kind of unanimous decision, but when they did. Everybody followed it. It was a simple rule set, similar to Bitcoin, right? Simple rule set. Um, it worked so well that Ben Franklin ended up choosing that model as the basis of the Constitution. Crazy. Yeah, that was something um, that you mentioned that I did some more research on afterwards. The fact that they thought of that having, I think, what were, was it six different tribes of uh, Native Americans that had all basically agreed to be to run as individuals but then to have a centralized leadership of power that they all agreed on um and that's exactly how they structured the United States the 13 colonies were all independent sovereign states who then had this centralized power of the federal government that was initially just for defensive purposes it was just for you know if we if we get in a scrap with another country we can then you know coalesce our powers into enough force and enough centralization to be useful in in a kind of conflict that where centralization of power is a necessity to a degree and then after that conflict is over we can resume operations as our independent states it, it's a really inspiring way that we came up with this this constitution that we implemented for our country yeah it's quality of rules over quantity fewer overarching rules instead of more and nitpicky. Um, it's similar to like the non-aggression uh, non-aggression principle that libertarians speak of. Um, it's similar to uh, the golden rule, you know, from religion, do unto others. It's a right. very simple thought. I, I mean, and same thing with Bitcoin's white paper, when you compare that to like the legal code surrounding the US dollar, right? Simplicity. And the other thought I had, and I made a note in the side here when reading this section about the Six Nations, was that amazing ideas and inventions that lead to paradigm shifts generally don't happen on accident. So when we think about the United States of America, an absolutely unbelievable idea, especially in its time for how to organize human beings, tons of checks and balances, a lot of relinquishing of power by elites. I mean, think about the guys that set this system up. I know it was wildly imperfect, especially when we think about like human rights here in the 21st century, but in its context, in its time, it's amazing that a bunch of really rich white dudes basically set up a system that distributed control extraordinarily, right? They didn't just get in a room and say, hey, put the 12 of us in control, right? So I'm saying remarkable idea didn't happen on accident. Back to the Ben Franklin thing. He literally invited the council in 1765 to the new Albany convention to describe how they were organizing themselves because he had the intuition and, and he'd taken in different options. And so these guys brought a lot of things into their idea of how to organize the United States of America. The same is true of Bitcoin. Bitcoin didn't happen on accident. It didn't come completely out of the blue. It's something that cypherpunks had ideated on and tried and iterated on for a long time to create the protocol that we know as Bitcoin. So it's easy to just think, oh, U.S. popped out of nowhere. Bitcoin popped out of nowhere. That's not how this stuff happens, and that's not generally how great ideas come to the surface. And it's also a good reason to stay vigilant in Bitcoin, because as we saw, this this constitution mm. has existed for two hundred and fifty some odd years. It started out very decentralized, and as over the years, this this creep has happened with politicians reaching for more power. It's just a natural human wants for more, right? More power, more influence, more potential corruption going on. And slowly and surely, this federal government has turned into a much more powerful entity than it was ever conceived of uh, from the origination of all of this. And it's very similar to how Bitcoin has, you know, it started out extremely centralized, has remained extremely centralized, has rule sets that are much more difficult to overcome than just, you know, law on paper, the way we have our constitution. But it took a long, long, long time for the Constitution to really come under serious fire, probably arguably the Civil War. But um, what I'm getting at, though, is that vigilance is the price that we need to pay to keep this thing the way it is, the way we want it to be, because there's nothing guaranteeing that it always remains 
this unsoiled white linen that we see it as right now. You know, it, it can it can be sullied like that tablecloth at that wedding tonight will be. Yeah, we do not want to take a shit in the beautiful <laughs> Bitcoin diaper. We do not. We want it to remain pure. Well, one thing I'm going to hand, hand make this a question here to you, Tim, is you talk some about in this book repeatedly at different sections about basically control being seized and centralization occurring in times of crisis. What are some things that come to mind either in the book or outside the book for you? It's like these are key landmarks in history of times when control has been seized and a system has been soiled because of a quote unquote crisis. Like the sheets on a cot and on the way to the hospital. Yeah. I feel for you guys. I feel for whoever's <laughs> in that uh, ambulance is who I feel for. Winston Churchill's quote, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Mm. That, that, that right yep. there. It's been repeated by a lot of politicians. Which is funny. <laughs> they're, they're saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> I mean, a case could be made for, let's think back. What was it? Uh, the WMDs, remember? You know, uh, Classic. Led to further mi- uh, military uh, imperialism. Um, the financial crisis. Everything's now too big to fail. Uh, you guys even talked with Model about the World Trade Center attacks, the Patriot Act, and everything that it's been. You know, it's been it's it's still here twenty some odd years later. The Patriot Act still exists. Even recently, like the Canadian truckers convoy, we'll shut off your bank accounts because of free speech. Um, the whole FTX uh, shitstorm. Um, now there's the regulatory solutions to that. Um, I mean, cow farts are killing the planet. <laughs> what you know? They're, they're going to try and t- control every aspect of our lives and because they can. Cause, and, and the phrase that I always think of is like, legal doesn't mean moral, right? I, I don't know if you guys agree with that concept, but... Oh, for sure. Just because they're behind the, behind the cloak of legality, you know, they just say they're more moral and that's not actually how it works. I mean, that's how statecraft works around the world. Like every... I mean, nobody would agree that it's it's moral for me to go overpower my neighbor and take his house, but states literally do that on a daily basis. Russia is in the process of doing that to Ukraine right now, but on, on that state level, it seems to be, I mean, not that people accept it as good or moral or anything, but those moral concepts kind of go out the window in a lot of state action in ways that, especially with the propaganda, convinces people that in the WMD situation, like, Oh, there is potentially, you know, this intel that says this is, these exist there. So we have the moral obligation to go take them away. Having that not been the case, but they just wash their hands of it and walk away. We can't do that as individuals, but states can get away with that kind of action. Think about what's been legal in the past. I mean, this is where even just a brief trip down history lane, get your eyebrows up and you're reminded 155 years ago. Slavery was legal. It was legal to own another human being. Think about how freaking far we've come since then. And there are there are things that are currently normal, ubiquitous, legal, you know, societally accepted that won't be in the future. I think one of the leading things in that is that the supply and price of money is controlled by a few dudes that that meet once a month. Like I think that will look as anachronistic as some of these crazy things we look back on history that was just the water every everyone was swimming in. Well, and it, it's so prevalent. I mean, wasn't it Gladstein uh, said something like, I'll, I'll mess up the numbers, but half of the world is living under authoritarian control. Hopefully, and down the road in the future, that will be considered as crazy as some of these other uh, level control. One of the most stark contrasts in the world, and you talk about it in the book, in the, a tale of two Koreas is the stark difference between North and South Korea. Um, and historically, North Korea was, you know, communist stronghold. The Soviet Union had influence there. South Korea was U.S. influenced. They had the whole Korean conflict, and then the DMZ was created, where you know there's a stalemate for the last sixty to seventy years. But you can see the stark difference in the economy. I mean, when you see capitalism flourishing in South Korea, South Korea is producing. I mean, Samsung's producing electronics for the entire world. There's huge corporations and huge wealth and influence going on from South Korea. There's the same people on the same piece of land with nothing different than 
simply the political organization and the politics about how they are run. And the North Koreans are starving, being fed propaganda through their schools. You, I mean, it's a stark contrast, even from, uh, from night, from, the, from space. You can see mm. how many lights are lit up in South Korea, how many lights in North Korea. I mean, just from that metric, you can determine a massive wealth differential between these two countries. And it, again, it's just back to politics and power and centralization and control. One is a massively centralized dictatorship. The other is a decentralized uh, democratic republic. Yeah. Um, when I was researching that, you know, and I put that in the permissionless chapter, but that, that could be in the decentralization chapter, but it kind of the history of North and South Korea kind of read like a dysfunctional relationship with the, the Northern communist being in like the abusive partner. Like imagine those two Koreas going on a date, like you sit here, I order for you. I told you right. to wear the red dress. You know, it's like, it was just so much control and South Koreans had to basically ask for permission. For, of course, we're going to have to split away from that. I mean, anybody would, anybody should in a, in a situation like, in a relationship like that. Yeah. We've talked about this a whole lot and this human incentives really are the mover of the world. If you give people the right incentive set, they will produce, they will produce wealth for themselves in their country. And the society benefits from that. If you take away that impetus from people mm. to be able to make themselves better, knowing that anything that I produce, anything that I do will simply be taken from me. In North Korea, you said that I mean, even the houses they're in are owned by the North Korean state, by Kim Jong-un or whatever his name is. His picture is on the wall of every schoolhouse, of every schoolroom. These kids have to worship this dear leader. And they know, or there's maybe they don't outright know, but they understand that there is no real future for anything I produce. It's just going to be taken from me. So what incentive do I have to produce or be better? It's really better to just blend in because if you stand out in any way, you're much more likely to get smashed by the hammer than if you just blend in with the crowd. Don't do anything outstanding because that's more likely to get you in trouble than not. And mm -hmm. the complete opposite is true in the South. You know, the phrase Bitcoin fixes this. I, I really think it incentivizes this because what you're talking about is exactly. incentive. Take these incentives away. What, what is there to do? Uh, and free societies lead to an increased quality of life for that very reason. Controlled societies lead to a decreased quality of life for that very reason. That's something that really has, I guess, maybe it's just China hasn't had enough tenure yet to really. It, the one thing about China that I am confused about is so there's. The Great Firewall, they, they hold all this information from, they keep their people from the, the influence of the world. They seem to have figured out enough capitalism to sprinkle in there to keep the motor going, but not enough to allow people to have the freedom to have free speech or, or, or freedom of movement and, and those types of things. I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is, is, when does that hammer drop for China? Do, have they figured out a mix where it could last longer than it otherwise should? You know what I mean? Right. right. Just ruminating about this because I've, I've often wondered about how China is as successful as they are with the kind of, um, you know, steel fist in the velvet glove that they're operating with. They, they are, they have a governor on their productivity engine is the way I would think about right. it. Yeah. So that's the beauty of looking at systems that work. And systems that work have shown themselves, as, as you talk about in this book, to kind of reflect and echo nature. It's like just a bunch of organisms out doing their own shit, looking for their own best interest and cooperating. So self-interested cooperation leads to an enormous amount of productivity. It's why our species is where it's at. And if you look at certainly North Korea, it's the most dramatic example of it just someone has has put gas in the diesel tank in, in North Korea and the engine just doesn't run. They're totally hampered from a productivity standpoint because of how centralized they are. As you said, there's enough capitalism injected into the Chinese economy and they have they've been given a great deck. They're in a great spot in the world with a ton of different people. But I do have the same question. Like that was one of my main thoughts Josh reading Changing World Order by Dalio because of how centralized this is and how hampered they're going to be to really be able to properly price and price goods and 
and allocate resources and all these things, are they going to be hampered long term? It's a very good question. And that's one of the beauties of Bitcoin too. And just free markets in general and capitalism is that they're not only just, but they're productive. Tell me what you think of this thought as well, Tim. It's also helpful to remember that the Soviet Union, even even into the mid-80s, there were academics in the US who said, this thing is going to overtake us. It is just a monster that is just efficient and it's killing it. But inside that country, they were literally falling apart, but nobody outside of it knew that. They were able to keep a lid on the on the truth that they were literally just in shambles right up until the last moment when they actually fell. You know, like uh, uh, we have a car, we're driving down the highway and we figured out how to put uh, the gas tank on full at all times. Right. The reality of the situation is different. We got this and then who knows when that's the fumes are going to go out. But the other one is Japan uh, in the mid eighties to early nineties. Everybody thought Japan was going to rule the world. And then suddenly the brakes just slammed on in their economy and they're doing fine. Don't get me wrong, but they, they didn't turn into this economic juggernaut that everyone had anticipated they were going to be. They hit a wall. Wasn't there, uh, aren't they the leaders in uh, debt to GDP? Like they were the first ones to cross that chasm. The 130%. Yeah. That people generally call it. Yeah. They went full debt clown before everyone else. Uh, One of the thoughts I just wanted to throw out here dealing with incentives that came to mind was uh, just parenting. And we'd have to ask someone that's been on this earth longer than us, but it seems that there's a trend towards a very soft, supple young adult that has no idea how to, how to really survive in the wild. I am an absolute disbelief, and we talked about this with Hada last week, it's just the number of grown-ass men and women who are completely beholden to the milk from their parents' teeth way into adulthood. We're not, we're not talking about adolescents or people in their low 20s. We're talking people that, are, that have no direction, no motivation, well into their 30s. And it gets me back to thinking about this seizing control in times of struggle, right? If, if that is your mantra as a parent of, hey, anytime my kid's having a hard go, I'm just going to step in. Oh, look, you know, Tim and his new wife, Angelica, can't afford the down payment on their house. So we're going to step in and help them. That's not good for them, right? Because now they, they're not assessing reality properly. Oh, oh, Johnny lost his job at Home Depot. So he's shacked up with us now. Well, Home Depot was a fake job anyways. Johnny needs to go figure out a trajectory. It's like if you, if you take that up to the nation state level, we, we have systems that allow this. And so as we say on the show a lot, distill it down to the individual. If you, if you, let's make it you, if you don't have the proper incentives, right? If I have flaming Hot Cheetos and popcorn whenever I want in the basement and I never have to work a day in my life, I'm going to become a fat piece of shit. And th- that is what is happening in society. I think a lot of it is fiat enabled when we distill it down to like, what is the root cause? There's always a bailout. And the balloon keeps getting bigger until it pops. I'll get off my soapbox. There, there, there's two things that you, that you made me think about. Um, and you're speaking of sovereignty, right? And sovereignty gives you that incentive structure back. Like, you know, I, I was fiat mindset for the majority of my life, right? Um, I fiat foods. <laughs> um, actually, Bitcoin, the sovereignty that I gained from Bitcoin kind of led to the health sovereignty that I've experienced over the last few years. Right, because now I have that incentive to learn about it and to take action on it. Um, the other thought is, uh, I wrote an article, another article about um, like helicopter parents and snowflake kids, and and you're right, it's institutionalized uh, paternalism is what it is. Because if you are always suckling from the teat, and your kids see that, they see that as that that's supposed to be the norm. That's the normal behavior. And that's just perpetuated into the future and future generations. Yeah. This reminds me of, it, this has been attributed to a lot of different people. And it, it's basically the, the thesis of the fourth turning, which is, you know, the good men make easy times, easy times make weak men, weak men make hard times. And that whole cyclical cycle, um, it, it just reminds me of that. And I feel like we are in the midst of this transition between weak men and, and tough times, you know? And it, I, again, maybe that's, a, that's like a, a rough guide for how these things work. But I do feel 
a lot of history is cyclical and that is a cycle that seems to repeat itself throughout history over and over again. We don't learn this lesson. And I guess it's really impossible to, because in order to really, for any individual to learn this kind of a lesson, they have to either A, study a lot of history or B, have lived this. And it's impossible to have a lifetime spanning long enough to really truly understand these concepts. Mm. And so you, we end up back where we are with like coddling making weak people because we just coddle them to death where they don't have to produce. And then we're surprised when the production doesn't happen. Exactly. Tim, what period in history do you feel this date and time is most similar to based on your studies and assessment? What, what, what period would you compare the 2020s to? So I, that's funny that you mentioned the fourth turning because when I was uh, mentally preparing for this, I was think that I was thinking that exact thought about the fourth turning. I, I'd like to go back in that book and get specific, like what was that time, that era, that was that last fourth turning, and kind of really dig in on that. That would be an interesting comparison to compare that last mm-hmm. fourth turning to this one more in depth. But like in terms of the what I wrote about in the book. I'd also be interested to see what life was like immediately after the printing press. Because remember, the printing press decentralized information, right? But you got to think, when a new tool is built, you might not know how to use it properly. There might be some errors. Somebody might like, you know, hurt themselves with it. Like you said, Josh, uh, those people that have been coddled, how do they come out of that? How do they break out of that mold and just step up and say, okay, now I'm going to take charge. If you're not used to that, that's got to be a messy thing. That's probably yeah. why, why there's always some kind of skirmish or conflict in between the turnings. Everyone always thinks this time is different and it always is a variation. It's never going to be exactly the same. And the thing that I think we would all agree on that is very different now, especially versus like anything even relatively historic is information moves so quickly now. So I feel like these cycles could move potentially much faster than they ever have in the past. We might not see the same longevity of a 20-year span for some of these things. It might happen in five years. It might happen in one year. And and then there's all these other variables that we're throwing in now, like artificial intelligence and the productivity gains from that. There's so many variables that for us to sit here and say, oh, this is the fourth turning and things are going to get rough for the next 20 years and we're kind of fucked. And we're going to have to deal with a lot of shit. Like we could be completely wrong. This might actually be a, might be a new, um, um renaissance. Renaissance is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. We also have the inertia from the previous, uh, from our previous experiences, the previous turning, whatever you want to say that, that we're, it's kind of like the idea of, uh, when you're searching for what career you're going to go into, well, the career that you're probably going to have is not even created yet. Right but you're still going towards a different goal. So we're, a- we're not aiming at where the target will be. We're aiming where the target is right. in a way. For sure. I've thought that quite a bit recently about school for my kids and stuff. There's so many useless things they're learning because, I mean, number one, there's no way to know what 20 years from now is going to look like. Not elementary music. That's important. No, definitely not. Ele- I think music is something people need in general. It has to happen. Like that's not going to change. Oh, brain development, it, it helps math skills. There's, there's research that shows that if you, you know, engage in music, your math scores go up. It's anyway. Yeah. Hey, I have this quote that I wanted to bring up. I should have done it a little earlier when we were talking about incentives, but it, when I was reading parts of your book, it reminded me of Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations. It's an old book from, yeah, it was like 250 years old, but this, there's so many good nuggets out of this book. And his quote is, So this is talking about individual incentives and how that's structured. Every individual neither intends to promote the public interest nor knows how much he is promoting it. He intends only his own security. And by directing that industry in such a manner as to produce its greatest value, he intends only his own gain. But in this, and in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end, which was no part of his intention. So he's basically saying... All of us following our own incentives to produce for ourselves are all collectively attributing to this whole of society without even intending to. That's his entire invisible hand idea from that book. And that is, in a nutshell, what it is that animates people. 
what it is that gets us up in the morning to go to work, to produce something to bring home for our family, but also in doing so, we're producing for an entire whole of society. We're driving old ladies to the hospital. You're teaching kids music. I mean, we're all helping the whole with simply our own self-interest. And and that's the word right there, self-interest. There's so many people that conflate self-interest with selfishness. To me, the different selfishness is you're doing uh, you know, a self-want that will end up hurting somebody else, right? That's mm. selfish. Where self-interest is, I'm just doing, going back to incentives. I'm incentivized to do this for whatever reason. And that helps everybody out. If everybody, it's more robust of a system as opposed to that more centrally controlled system where it's like, you do this, you do that. Because we say so. It's only a few brains trying to solve all of the world's problems as opposed to letting all of the brains of society kind of figure out their their niche. Yes, but for all of the brains to work in tandem, we do need tools and systems that allow for cooperation. Bingo. If you go back to Neanderthal, they don't have the advent of monetary tools, right? And and like one example I was thinking about reading Lynn's book Broken Money, which we're both in the middle of is Banking was a remarkable and and in still in many ways is a remarkable idea and a very, very necessary tool for humans to cooperate with value transfer across time and space. The, the abstractions are very helpful for commerce to move quicker and for people to specialize in all these things. So you go through like the upgrades in monetary history, like coinage, banking. Now, you know, the three of us believe we have another huge upgrade, that being Bitcoin. But it's not like these things can, it's not like cooperation can just happen out of the blue. I mean, yes, it is an organic process that emerges over centuries. But I think one of the greatest gifts Bitcoin gives us, it, it's a tool upgrade in human cooperation. And that's why it's, it's such a big deal. It, it allows for the hive mind to fire on all cylinders. And how many cavemen, when they first saw the wheel, thought of it like a paperweight or something? You know what I mean? Like, they had no idea to, how to conceptualize that. And, and it takes time, not for the, just the idea to be created, but then for everybody to conceptualize how does that idea help us on the whole. And that's kind of where we're at now. Yeah. You can't underestimate how challenging it is to wrap your head around totally new otherworldly ideas and concepts. I actually remember explaining, I've spent now as the years have gone on a fair amount of time explaining Bitcoin to my parents. And my mom is very, very intelligent, one of the most well-read human beings I've ever been around, but just doesn't care about money at all, which is totally fine. I think that's that's great. Her interests are in music. She plays a ton of piano. She was a music major. She loves theology, all these other things. But as she was listening to me one night, I think this was about a year ago, kind of clicked for like, especially from the human rights angle, I was kind of going HRF, Gladstein, talking about the third world in Africa and just how big of an idea Bitcoin is. And basically she said, I, I think the problem right now is it's such a big idea and it's so much different than everything we're all used to that it's, it's almost impossible. I think she used the word impossible for people to, to get it right now. And I think that's a, a very astute statement from someone that doesn't know a ton about Bitcoin. I completely agree. And I think that that reality is part of the reason that the timeline could be elongated here more than people think. You could have yeah. arrived at the station a long, long time before the next train comes in. For sure. Maybe it's years away. Maybe it's decades away. I think, but I, I think that's a true statement, especially for her, for her generation. You know what I mean? And yes. as you work your way back from that generation down to the millennials and Zoomers, I think it becomes more second nature for them to understand this just because of the nature of their exposure to technology and the comfort level, honestly, with technology. Right. And I mean, I, I know you feel this, Dan. I'm sure all three of us have experienced this now, but like you meet someone who's 20 years old. They have an entire, and this really makes me feel old. When you start hearing them like use terms and words, you're like, I have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. And they're speaking English. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. holy shit. Like imagine removing two or three generations from me. I'm not going to be able to understand what it is they're saying at all. I'm not even going to be able to infer a lot of it because it's just so foreign to me. So then I picture myself in 
that age range that your mom is in. And I'm like, okay, I, I totally understand why she views it that way. I, I, it's similar to seeing that, uh, new trend on whatever social media where they're like getting the people. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yep. I know what you're talking about. Actually, that's exactly what I had in mind. What is that? I don't either. I don't know. It's very, uh, it's, it's very fucking strange. It's very dystopian. I'll do it for Bitcoin. (laughs) Is there anything you won't do for Bitcoin though? Let's get that on the table. Is that meatloaf? <laughs> I'll do anything for Bitcoin, but I won't do that. We'll just leave it. Okay. Big. But I got to clarify. I don't think cavemen used the wheel as paperweight. I don't think they had paper back then. I'm not a historian. Papyrus. They're papyrus. There you go. Yes. I love that. There's a one, one other question I wanted to get to. And you talked a bit about a lot of open source projects. Linus, am I pronouncing his last name right? Torvaldus? Yeah. yeah. He basically created Linux, which is the OS in the world that underpins everything. Everything that really matters is underpinned by this. And you have guys like Gates and Jobs who made made themselves billionaires from effectively the same technology, arguably worse technology, but they just marketed it much better and they monetized it. Clearly, that's the reason they made a lot of money off of it. But it, the thing that strikes me is there's always these people throughout history who you have to believe that. So if you believe that incentives guide everybody, then it's in, in their minds, they must feel that benefiting humanity is a better payment for their work than profiting for themselves personally from it. That's something that a lot of people, including myself, have a hard time with. Like, how can you create something so valuable, know that it's valuable, and yet, and just like Satoshi did, give it away, basically. Like Satoshi sat is sitting on a million Bitcoin or so. He has never taken any of it and sold it and profited from it, either because he's dead or some kind of an angelic being that isn't taking advantage of his own prosperity. How is it? And this is a big question that I know none of us can really answer, but how do you how do you factor that into the equation of incentives? That that's that's huge. Um, couple thoughts. Well, like I I was conflicted writing this chapter because, you know, I have that basic kind of acceptance of capitalism is good. So I'm, I, I wasn't trying to really write anti-capitalist anything just by saying you should give everything away, but it was a, it was a uh, interesting chapter nonetheless. But um, I mean, our current monetary system has kind of resulted in an oversized and unnecessary donor class, politicians, bureaucrats, middlemen, whatever. Leeches, yeah. Uh, I, I think of, uh, Jeff Booth's, uh, like concept of like ego death. <laughs> You've heard him talk about that. Yeah. That's necessary to get from one step to the next, to be able to give something away like that. Like the technological innovation of Bitcoin, it's deflationary, right? Which long-term is a good thing for society. It allows us to be more self-sovereign. We don't need the middlemen. Um, if we accept and promote Bitcoin, it's like we're seeing human energy go to where it's best utilized. Mm. So if we want to be successful, not just now for ourselves, like that difference between self-interest and selfishness, but if we want to be able to zoom out and see our society, our humanity move forward, I, I don't know how Satoshi was able to do that. I, I truly, yeah. that, that's one of the mysteries that we'll never solve. I don't believe because the ability to say, I have all these coins. I know, I know what this thing is capable of. And here it is. Here it is world. Here's a gift to you. It's beyond comprehension. I don't have a good answer for you on that. It's just amazing. It really is. And I, and, and one of the themes for me as the years go on studying Bitcoin, Tim is just how remarkable the origin story is and how unreplicable the origin story is. It, it is damn close to impossible to replicate. And, and that's why this is the shot we have. Bitcoin's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect, but this is the chance we have. And it's something we can build on. And, and that, that building on and that open source and that, that widespread accountability is why these systems like Linux work. But by the way, is it Linux or Linux? Linux. Um, I've heard it pronounced both ways. 
Okay. The fact it, it, someone's like these guys are fucking idiots. They don't even know how to pronounce <laughs> Linux. Whatever. But my point. If my you're point such was, a nerd that you uh, are worried about how we pronounce Linux, then go fuck yourself. This isn't the show for you. Yeah. On some that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the, the real discovery of Linux for someone that doesn't know anything about coding is, is uh, <laughs> speaking is, of is just is basically I'm sure it was incredibly well constructed off the bat. But it, it's had so many people staring at it, looking at it, and improving it. That's the exactly. reason it's such a robust OS. Yes. You you also bring up in your book, Tim, the Wikipedia thing. You, you highlighted people analyzing, and I've heard this other places too, like the accuracy of Wikipedia. It's actually incredibly accurate, and it stays up to date because it gets vetted so thoroughly, and it's, it's everywhere but nowhere. Tons of human yeah. beings are looking at it. Going back to what Josh said, uh, the the incentives are there for them to do that. The restrictions are lifted, and then imagine that you got to have a a positive outlook on society, like that people given the right conditions will make good choices. You got to start with that, and and if you start with that mindset, then you're going to allow for people to flourish. But if you start with the mindset that hmm things are bad, and I have to control others because if I don't then it won't go to according to my plan. Well, that's where you have authoritarianism. That's where you have all of this control. For sure. Walled gardens suck for a reason. I just thought of an example from my life. Not sure if I've told this story on this show before, but when I was in high school, I played on this intramural basketball team. It was actually at another high school. One of my buddies got a few, few friends together. It was like 10 dudes that thought we were pretty good at basketball. So we, we scrimmaged with each other. I think we met like three times. All we did was scrimmage with each other. And I remember on one of the nights we scrimmaged, we were all like, we, we are going to be fucking incredible this year. Like we are going to be hard to beat. These were the types of phrases that were coming out of people's mouths. We did not win a game. I think we went <laughs> 0 and 10. We got destroyed. Okay. When we actually went out to play in competition. Those scrimmages are like a walled garden, closed system OS. It seems great in-house. The whole team's vetted it. Experts have looked at it. Jump shot looks fantastic. I'm quick. You know, I'm breaking ankles on other, you know, five, eight white dudes in a gym. Well, then you go out into the, the, the actual free market, the, the, the vicious tundra of uh, intramural competition, and you realize, no, we actually suck. And so this is like, this is why systems like Bitcoin and increasingly Noster, moving very quickly, yeah. getting better very fast, right? Wikipedia, Linux, they, they end up getting better and better faster and exponentially, and they grow robust because they're not just scrimmaging with each other, stroking each other off. They're actually playing real life. They're evolutionary systems. Totally. These evolutionary systems, you know, and you, you made mention in the book of birds, the way they flock, like there's no centralized bird giving off, you know, actions on the front, like go right, go left, dive. These guys are just simply following the bird ahead of them. And they, I mean, you can watch it happen. It's, it's, it's an elegant movement that they all just instinctively make following. It's simply following each other. You got to trust and respect nature is going to do the right thing. And like we said, if we zoom out far enough, Bitcoin is the culmination of all of these properties coming together. And it's a natural discovery. It's not a fly by night and it's not a get rich quick screen. It's none of that. You're looking too short term, and, and which is not their fault because high time preference mindset is pretty prevalent in today's society because of the incentives brought on by fiat. But Bitcoin, it may not fix this, but it definitely incentivizes this. You know what I mean? Mm, agreed. Love that phrase. Love that phrase. Uh, we've done a lot of talking in this one, Tim. Thanks for letting us uh, chop guys. it up a lot on our on our own show here what did we is there anything we missed anything you really want to explore that you're like hey i gotta get this in before we go no oh, man i know i i've had a blast and i'm i'm just grateful for the opportunity i've been listening to you guys for years i, I love your content um just thank love you so much i appreciate that yeah. thank you it was great meeting you in miami um Loved your book. We'll obviously link it. We'll have you send some of those articles you alluded to too. I yeah. particularly want to hear the one about uh, that that gets into parenting a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll we'll put those in the show notes as well. Uh, hand off to you though, formally uh, for the audience. Where where can they find you? Uh, I'm at uh, Twitter X whatever. 
Um, Mama called him Twitter. I'm going to call him Twitter. It's uh, Twitter. Tim, Tim underscore Niemeyer underscore. I'm also on Noster. Uh, co-host Lincoln Land Bitcoin in Springfield. If you're ever here, swing on by. We meet once a month, usually first Monday of the month. Also just started uh, creating content for Wiser, uh, the educational Bitcoin app. So uh, check me out over there. And I'm probably going to, in the future, try and write a few more articles for Bitcoin Magazine. But otherwise, once it's the school year, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on school right now. So catch me online. All right, Tim, if I don't survive this wedding, it was nice meeting you. <laughs> it's a pleasure. It was an honor. Good luck with your white sheets. It's time to go hydrate. Time to go hydrate. Yep. Start pounding waters. Tim, thanks, man. We appreciate you. Thank you, guys. That is going to be a wrap for this week, ladies and gents. Josh and I really enjoyed Tim's angle on Bitcoin. Man, can a lot be gleaned from how human beings have behaved in centuries and millennium past. As is often said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Our hope is that the protocol we know as Bitcoin has learned from the past and can work to improve the future. If you like this show and want more people to hear about it, it'd be huge for us if you take a minute or two out of your day right now to go rate us on whatever app you're using and leave us a review on Apple, or just tell a friend about an episode you particularly enjoy. We're also always down for feedback or comments, and our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. If you are not listening to us on the Fountain app, you should download it and start earning free sats the moment you click play. There is no catch. We appreciate each and every one of you listeners, and we look forward to another romp next week here on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Take care. 